This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Hi, it's Annie and Jonathan. We are bringing you, for another week, uh, a conversation that we love. And this one is with Malcolm Gladwell. And I think that it might leave you a little bit optimistic about life. Malcolm Gladwell is the best-selling author of seven books. They hardly need listing. Their titles alone have entered the language and the culture. Blink, Outliers, The Tipping Point, most recently, The Bomber Mafia. He's host of the Revisionist History podcast. And I'm going to guess perhaps the only Canadian who has mastered the Israeli pronunciation of the word chutzpah. That's my failed British attempt. He's also the co-founder of Pushkin Industries, who make the Revisionist History podcast and made uh, not only the foreign policy magazine's list of global thinkers, but the Time magazine 100 influentials list, which is the place you really want to be. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome to Unholy. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And such a pleasure and a privilege to have you on. Thank you. Um, I kind of want to start with the issue of success, Malcolm. And you you come from a Mennonite community. You describe that as a small community diver- devoted to service and reconciliation. They don't do honorifics, you say. And you write about how we sometimes overlook how liberating it is when culture abandons the aggressive pursuit of status markers. But having that in mind, you are unbelievably successful. And I wonder if the way that you were brought up, where it seems that modesty was the important value and competitiveness, not so much. Does that help? Does that push you forward or rather the other way around? Well, huh, that's an interesting question. You know, I think that um, I think of um, the success that I've had as being not inadvertent, but I didn't set out to. There are some people who, you know, you talk to the young Barack Obama when he's 30 years old, I was just reading about him the other day, and everyone talked about how he had a very clearly articulated sense of his own destiny. He was bound for glory. And there's a whole category of people who are bound for glory who have a clear conception of where they wanted to go, where they want to go, and the ability to take them there. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't put myself in that category. I would say that at no time did I ever imagine that I would be in the position that I'm in. It seems a lot more inadvertent or serendipitous, to my mind, than calculated. So I think, going back to your question, in the world I grew up with, the aversion was to calculated ambition, not serendipitous success, <laughs> if that makes sense. It does. It's just a very, I, I think of Jewish parents, which are a little bit the opposite of that. So I was, that's yeah, I, I was, I was not but... raised by Jewish parents. I was <laughs> raised by my, when I, when I was in school, I decided at a very early early age, I think probably when I was around 10, that I would no longer show my report card to my parents. I felt that was none of their business. And they uh, went along with this. In fact, my mother would explain to the school why, you know, you were required to have your parents sign your report card. And she explained to them why she wasn't signing it. Well, <laughs> So that seems about, just about the most un-Jewish mother position imaginable. <laughs> Absolutely. So now we know the inverse of the Jewish mother is the Mennonite parent. Well, she's no, no, my mother, that. remember, is Jamaican. So we're uh, in a Mennonite community. At the time, she wouldn't. She was not attending a Mennonite church. So this is this is a kind of Jamaican chill more than it is a Mennonite. Um, it's, it's coming from a slightly different cultural place. Since we're talking about parents, and particularly, maybe this is a Britishism, actually, pushy parents, but, you know, driven parents – you wrote recently about in the area of sport and how parents are pushing their kids into ever more serious training, mm-hmm. even when they're very young. I mean, really little. And all about, instead of enjoyment and health, they're thinking success and achievement. And you sat, you seem to take a quite dim view of that. Parents getting the whole business of success, since we're on the subject of success, are they getting that business wrong, do you think? Well, so sports is something, if we just confine the conversation for a moment to sports, that we we know a good deal about 
And so there was a wonderful book written by my friend David Epstein called Range, where he talks a lot about where does excellence in sports come from? And the evidence is seems to be, is mounting at the moment that pushing a child very early on in life onto a very specific path in sports is a really bad idea mm. for any number of reasons. One is that you can't tell, as a practical one, if a child is seems to be gifted at tennis at the age of five, it means nothing because their their skills are so undeveloped that you're probably if you what you're observing as giftedness may be a kind of fluke. You don't know what they're good at. They have to experiment with all kinds of things. Secondly, parents pushing children into sports is a really good way to undermine their motivation. That's a, what you end up with: burnout cases who are done by the age of fifteen. Then there's you know a question of what if you really want to excel at something as an adult, what you want to be doing as a child is building as broad a base of abilities as possible. Now, a lot of the stuff is very analogous to academic learning as well. The, you don't want to specialize at six. That's nuts. You, you, want to, you, you want to have a kind of, if you look at, so Roger Federer is a great example of this kind of, he's someone who was playing football and until well into his, he didn't, he didn't specialize in tennis until his kind of um, mid-teens. And as a result, he was able, you know, you can see the footwork he learned on the soccer pitch in his tennis and if he was only playing tennis, he would never have had the advantage of learning a, a set of skills that are very valuable to elite tennis, but not explicitly learned on the tennis court. Right Now, you can say the same thing about academic learning as well. You, you might say of your six-year-old that she has an appetite for mathematics. But of course, you can't tell a single thing about someone's appetite for mathematics at six because the mathematics you're doing at six has no relationship to the mathematics you would do if you were going to be a mathematician, right? Or someone who is using. So like all you can say is my, your six-year-old likes learning. So let her learn and stop trying to push the child in one direction or another. There's a really wonderful book and I I'm, uh, I wrote about it in my I was breaking my heart that I'd forgotten the name of the book and the name of the author who was written about youth sports. And it was really, 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 really good on this, on this, just saying that nothing of any kind of seriousness should happen until a child is in there uh, well into their teens. I mean, people come to you all the time for advice. So now, just because you've said all this, people are going to want to hear advice then for parenting. Does that extend beyond sports? Should you just let the kids do their own thing, don't push them, don't force them to specialize. Is that general parenting advice? Well, my reading of the, I'm hesitant to give it. I'm a new parent and a know-nothing parent, so I'm very uh, hesitant to give advice to anyone. But my reading of the, of the literature, it does back that idea up that, you know, there are a handful of things. If you want your child to be a chess grandmaster, then probably useful for them to start playing lots of chess at an early age. Um, but who wants their kid to be a chess grandmaster? <laughs> seems like <laughs> seems like a kind of rather kind of narrow and nasty dream to have of your six-year-old that you want them to spend their life huddled over a chessboard. But, uh, you know, I more and more as I've gotten older, I have come to the position that the relentless pursuit of excellence in trivial activities is pointless. The one thing I dearly hope of my daughter is that she does not want to become a champion swimmer because that just means she's going to spend six hours in the pool throughout her entire adolescence and early adulthood. Why would I want someone to spend six hours? Same thing with figure skating. You've got to be nuts to want your child to be a figure <laughs> skater. They uh, All they're doing is like getting up at 5 a.m. and practicing on some frozen rink and then falling and getting concussions. Do you know how many concussions figure skaters get? Tons of them. There's like, just this, like, <laughs> I, this idea that parents, parents are sort of living out some kind of fantasy about their own thwarted ambitions in the lives of their children, and they deprive their children of of a childhood, right? I I was a big runner as a child, and I dearly hope that my daughter is a runner. But the great thing about running is, running is one hour a day. You can't do more than that, right? That seems to me like a good, it, I would happily endorse an activity that my daughter wants to engage in if it only takes up an hour of her day through, you know, the end of her teenage years. That seems to me about right. That's called TikTok, Malcolm. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you go back, you revisit outliers, right? And you have that 10,000 hour rule. 
that that is for someone gifted to practice and to become ex- yeah. to excel, then that is what te- that is this generation. There are ten thousand hours they have TikTok. That is TikTok. no, I'm, I'm yeah. kidding. This is but that's wait, a boomer thing to say. But the ten thousand hour rule is always sort of brought up in this context, but. That was a rule in the in the way that I was describing it in my book. I mm-hmm. was talking about adults pursuing cognitively complex vocations. That's what it's for. You want to be a brain mm-hmm. surgeon? You got to do ten thousand hours of brain surgery. The idea that this should be mindlessly applied to every single thing that crosses <laughs> our minds is just so absurd. I, God, people just went crazy with that idea. Exactly. I mean, it's a, it, you know, in outliers, obviously, a book that across the whole world and people I think the the idea at the beginning is so clear and you make such a good point and I, I fear that what a lot of people took from that from the idea of age being such an important factor is just to keep their kids in kindergarten for another year and not let them go yeah, to first just, grade I mean that could be the, the point of what a lot of people read into yeah. isn't it yeah the discussion I did a podcast episode this yeah. season where I revisited this the whole point of looking at the relative age effect about how much someone's, you know, the month you were born in within your age cohort drives achievement. That's an issue for children who already are facing all kinds of other obstacles. You have a child from a poor single parent home with a learning disability who also happens to be the youngest in their class, then you have a, a problem, right? You have a child facing a series of obstacles. The idea that upper middle class children whose parents are PhD brain surgeons, the, that child would be disadvantaged because they're seven months younger than someone else. This is absurd. I mean, like, give me a break. We're talking about differences at the margin. And also, you know, for that child, the consequences under a privileged child, the consequences of being the youngest in the class are probably social. They're not intellectual. Mm-hmm. When I look at parents now endlessly trying to game the system and holding where I live, some of the kids in the some of the parents in a private school hold their kids back two years. <laughs> They're graduating high school at twenty. I was I graduated college at twenty. Is no one in a hurry to get out in the real world? <laughs> like, are we going to extend childhood indefinitely now? I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. Do the do the schools say when they get these kids rolling up for, to start school age fourteen? To the school principal say, this is on you, Malcolm Sometimes. Gladwell. You started Sometimes. this. I, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, my name comes up. I mean, look, it was going on before. Did I popularize? Was my book responsible for a kind of popularization and bastardization of this principle? Perhaps. Um, but, you know, you can't... Listen, what I learned a long time ago was when you put a book out into the world, you lose control over the book. It doesn't belong to you anymore. So mm-hmm. nothing is to my mind, more kind of pathetic than writers endlessly arguing with their readers about the correct interpretation of their writing. It's not yours anymore. You've given to, given to somebody else. And people read things in their own way, you know, and bring their own biases. And that's, you know, that's called life. This thing of what people make of what you write and what you broadcast, what you say, I know that you're very in demand as a speaker, but, you know, all kinds of people want to hear you speak, including corporations, et cetera. I mean, not this, I'm going to put it in such a Jewish way. What do they want from you? Um, but what is it they're seeking to get from you, do you think, that they're yeah. petitioning you to come and address them? Well, it's uh, a good question. I think what they want is, I mean, I would backtrack by saying business audiences are really interesting and, to my mind, special because that world um, is very intellectually open. I think it's because there's very little ideology in that world. And they're not as consumed by by these kinds of narrowing questions of ideology, identity, all these kinds of things. They have a very clear focus. They want to do better at what they're doing. So they're kind of a wonderful, in the same way that, what is the pleasure that's associated with coaching a group of athletes in a sport. The pleasure in large part comes from the specificity of the purpose, the clarity of the purpose. You're there to get better as a team. It's not about anything else. Have fun, but fun is associated with getting better, right? Business audiences are the same way. And so it makes them really, really interesting and um, fun to talk to. And what they want is insights from a world different from their own. That's why I'm there. I'm not I'm not there because I'm one of them. I'm there because I'm from the outside and I have 
I can bring them news from the world outside their own. So a lot of what I do in my talks is to make analogies between, you know, what can you, a group of lawyers, learn from medicine? What's going on in medicine right now? Because by the way, what's going on in medicine right now is really similar to what's going on in your world. Or, you know, what can mm -hmm. you, uh, a marketing person, learn from this historical example that is something I've been immersed in, which you probably, for you know, for many legit reasons, you're very busy. You don't have the time to kind of read oddball history books and draw lessons. So it's that kind of, I think that's what the appeal is. I'm, I'm taking this into different woods for a minute. And one of my favorite episodes of, of your podcast is titled, I Was a Stranger and You Welcomed Me. Mm -hmm. And you tell the story of your parents and a group of their friends sponsoring, essentially saving three Vietnamese refugees in 1979. You, you kind of tell the story of Canadian religious organizations telling the Canadian government, basically, why not let us as private citizens, you know, help or deal with small groups of people, take them into the community, take responsibility over them. This is, it's a fascinating story. And, and it made me, first of all, curious, does it still happen today? And how do you juxtapose that to what you're seeing today with, uh, for instance, Ukrainian refugees, or if we take it farther than that, anti-immigration politicians mm -hmm. rising in Europe? I mean, how do you see that whole, that whole issue? So the practice of letting private groups sponsor refugees has been used sporadically by a number of different countries. In the United States, for example, private Jewish groups sponsored Russian uh, Jewish refugees in the 70s, a big big wave of them, um, and later on as well. Canada has, um, ever since the, the Vietnam War, has the end of the Vietnam War, has codified this into practice. And so there is a system set up by which private groups can get together and directly contact refugees, bring them over, and they have responsibilities. Mm -hmm. They have to take care of them and do these kinds of things. The result of this is that Canada now, on a per capita basis, takes more refugees than almost any other country in the world. Australia is close, and there are moments like when Germany took lots and lots of Syrians. Where, And I think the lessons of this are really interesting. Canada has largely escaped the kind of anti-immigration wave that has swept over other Western countries. So is Australia, by the way. It's interesting mm -hmm. that I think of the of private refugee sponsorships as being not a symptom of pro-immigration feeling, but a cause of pro-immigration feeling. That a mm -hmm. lot of people's objection to taking in immigrants and or refugees is the feeling that that process is out of their hands. So that, there, that what we perceive as that is not actually an objection to taking in those from the outside. It's an objection mm -hmm. to the form. I don't like a bunch of people in a town far from me deciding how many outsiders get let in. Yeah. It seems like that scares me. But if I ask that same person, what if you were responsible for bringing a person in? and you had personal contact with them, you got to know them, and you took care of them for the first year or year and a half they were in the country, would your feelings be different? And I think what, you, what Australia and Canada prove is that, particularly the Canadian system, is that the same person who might object to a, a federal response to, to refugees are, is totally on board with a community response. So maybe, maybe immigration should be localized. You know, in America, there are as many communities that are desperately in need of newcomers as there are hostile to newcomers. So this is this crazy system where some people are crying out for, you know, there are cities in upstate New York, there's a city in upstate New York, uh, Utica, where a ton of, I believe, Afghan refugees or some others have gone, and they have had the effect, this is a dying city that's been revitalized by all of these newcomers. They love, you know, Detroit, look at how many the number of people from the Middle East who moved to Detroit in the last 25 years, that's what saved Detroit, that area. Yeah. You know, they wanted, they were being depopulated. They wanted outsiders. So it's like, this is just proof that this system makes sense at a local level. My, my hometown, that podcast episode was about my hometown. And mm -hmm. um, my hometown is an area where, that had a university called the University of Waterloo, which from its inception was an explicitly international university. And so my father who taught there, his grad students 
in the entire time he taught there, he, he probably had probably 90% of his grad students were coming from another country, India wow. in particular. So you had a community that evolved as a very cosmopolitan place. And so it is also now, 20, 30 years later, become a place where refugees have come overwhelmingly. Why? Because they've they're practiced in the art of welcoming outsiders. It's a, mm-hmm. it's something you need to practice. And if you give people a chance to practice it, they don't get worked up about it. They understand, oh, this has changed my, my brother had this lovely line. My brother was a high school, he, I talk about it in the episode, he's a high school principal, and 25% of his school was refugee kids, 25%. And he talked about how, I said, well, did that f- scare or freak out some of the parents? It's like, no, actually, because their child will come home. And he's like, he said, show and tell is so much more interesting when 25% of you. <laughs> and like the parents understood that their kids were getting the advantages of a cosmopolitan education that they never imagined they would get living in small town Ontario. Like, I mean, you, you could go to New York City and kids don't get exposure to that kind of, those kinds of cultures. And how can you not as a parent be thrilled by that? It's um, fascinating. There's so much interesting about that. I'm just thinking about in Britain, still mythologized 80 plus years later, is the kinder transport, the nine or 10,000 children that came to individual families. And maybe that's because of your point about agency, that if yeah. people feel that they, their household, their family took in immigrants, that is, or refugees, or that is so different from a top-down policy. I'm te- I'm, I do wonder, though, that you mentioned Canada and Australia. What part does it play that those are two very big countries with not very many people? Well, uh, but but I've always it's misleading, right? Because there are two very big countries, much of whose territory is uninhabitable. <laughs> I mean, Canada. Everyone in Canada lives in the same narrow strip along the border, and Southern Ontario is as densely populated as any other part of the highly urbanized West. So. You know, and Canada, you know, there. In fact, if you were to think about this kind of through the kind of rational lens, Canada has a very severe housing shortage. So you would think a place with right. high housing costs and a housing shortage that's densely populated would say enough, no more. But they don't. So I, I, I suspect that there's something more important going on here than simply a cold reading of someone's economic uh, or sociological circumstances. I'm desperate to get you onto chutzpah because I love that's one of my favorite of your podcasts. And we might, and chutzpah is an institution on this podcast because yeah. we award a chutzpah of the oh, week. Oh, you do. That's fantastic. Uh, we do. And each week we get into the sort of which category of chutzpah it is. I think there's actually a third category, yeah. which because you d- deconstructed, I think, North American, Jewish, Israeli, and I want to add the Yiddish extra. But we'll come to that later yeah. because before we do, I'm very struck by the tenor, in a way, of your remarks about immigration, because you took there, and I think you do this often, you take a subject that people are pretty down on and sort of depressed about and find a new way of thinking about it, but also often a positive way of thinking about it. And I'm just, it's sort of an obsession of mine at the moment. As we speak, I'm in the United States. We haven't yet, as we speak, had the results of these midterm elections, but amid midterm elections that have at least half the country unhappy. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of things around that make people pretty unhappy at the moment. I would say top of the list is the climate crisis, the idea that human beings were gifted this fantastic planet and maybe wrecking it. And that I see, you know, and speak to young people who are incredibly depressed about that. You think about post-truth and the information crisis, all these things that people can get, you know, there's a war in Ukraine, nuclear Armageddon, et cetera. How is it, do you think, and I'm aware again that people keep coming to you as a sort of sage and guide as if it's almost a religious role, but how is it we can feel some kind of hope through this period, which maybe maybe it's just me, but I feel it is an exceptionally despairing period for people, more than it was 10, 20 yeah. years ago. But what, what, how do you advise us? Well, Or how do you get through it yourself? By I mean, every time I pick up a history book, I feel better about the present day. I've just been writing this book about um, the African-American community in Los Angeles in the 1930s and 40s. You know, in, if you were black and you lived in LA in 1945, you could not live outside of a narrow strip of land around Central Avenue. When I say could not live, if you tried to go to the beach, you get arrested. 
And if you tried to, and 80 to 90% of the houses in Los Angeles were protected by restrictive racial covenants. In other words, there was a line in the property deed that said the property could not be sold by or occupied by someone of the, quote, Negroid race, right? That's, nine, that's in my mother's lifetime. You don't, yeah. If you don't think things have gotten better for a whole you know, swath of the world in that, what was going on in Israel in 1942? Do you think Israel is better off today than it was in? Absolutely. I mean, come on. It was like you could go around the world and point to one person after another whose fortunes are infinitely better. Would you rather be a, a would you rather be a woman in in 2022 than 1942? I mean, it's not even. I, I in this book, I have this little riff about flight attendants in you know, this well-known story. Flight attendants in the 60s. That was the most popular profession for women graduating from high school in you know, in North America in 1970, and there were you know something like 200,000 women applied for 12,000 jobs. And in order to get the job, you had to parade in front of a group of men who took your measurements. If you didn't have a perfect figure and perfect complexion, and if you weren't white, and if you weren't between five foot two and five foot eight, and if you weren't under the age of 32, and if you weren't unmarried, you didn't get the job. Now, that is 1970. This <laughs> is nuts. This is nuts. What, what do we, I mean, we have a separate set of problems today, but I think in comparison, a world in which the most popular job available to women is only available to those who, who basically look like models. I mean, nuts. This is 30, 50 years ago. So I can give you a hundred examples of that, right? In 19, if you ever read a, uh, watch a movie made in Los Angeles in the 1960s or 70s and see what Los Angeles looked like, you couldn't see anything. The smog was so bad, right? It was just like, now you go there and you can see the ocean. Like you're like, wow, <laughs> there's an ocean. Nobody knew there was an ocean in 1970. You couldn't see it. So I realize that climate change today seems like much more of an existential threat. But I don't know. I would happily trade the problems of of yesterday for the or problems of today for the problems of yesterday. Because I I love all that and I buy completely the idea of progress, but I think the climate crisis is a different category because it says all of those things are true, everything you've said, but this is the one that could sort of void all of them because we may just have made a habitable planet uninhabitable. Yeah, I do. So I think of the arms race model is a very useful one. So there is an ongoing arms race between our problems and our capacity to solve our problems, right? And we get a lot, sometimes we get a lot, we get very fixated on the accelerating pace of our problems and forget that the our ability to solve problems is also accelerating. And the question is, who's accelerating faster? I continue to think that our problem-solving capabilities are accelerating faster than our problems. So COVID is a great example. I mean, man, it took 50 years to get a polio vaccine, and it took three weeks to get a COVID vaccine. Now, if you don't take some, so we have, just as we did 100 years ago, an ongoing fear of species threatening, you know, viral outbreaks, species ending, but I'd say we're, a, we're an awful lot better equipped to deal with that threat today than we were in the past. I have faith that we'll come up with something. Um, if electricity becomes essentially free, which is not an, it's not an outrageous thought that energy could become essentially limitless and free in the next 20 years. It's not an impossible thought. Then you can do all kinds of things that you couldn't imagine doing before. Maybe, you know, the big problem with removing carbon from the atmosphere is that it takes a lot of energy. Well, if we have infinite energy, maybe it's not a problem anymore. I don't know. My point is, I don't know anything, but none of us do. Like, we just, we act as if we're going to be standing in one place in terms of our technology and our understanding and we're not. We're gonna. We're racing just as fast as we can. And um, let's not forget that, right? I'm going to ask one more thing from the concern side of this uh, of this conversation. It's not only climate change and global warming that threatened us, and maybe 50 years ago threatened us less. It does also. It also appears like disinformation or fake news, just plain lies, 
have the longevity like never before. And that one of the things that ails us as a society is that people can say the most egregious lies and have a huge audience. I'm just not sure that was true in the past. Well, no, the, one of the causes of our current dissatisfaction is that we've forgotten that what has changed in the world is that cranky people on the margins now can make themselves heard really efficiently. Mm -hmm. Historically, the cranky person was, they stayed in their basement and mm -hmm. you saw them walking around the neighborhood and they told you their crazy theory and they went back to their basement. But now they can tell the world about their crazy theories. And that's not evidence that there's more crazy cranky people. It's just evidence that the cra crazy cranky people have a <laughs> megaphone now. The single most absurd symptom of our current times is that people can read their Twitter feed and think they're getting a representative sample of the way the world thinks. This is just the dumbest, this is like the latest dumbest iteration <laughs> of this crazy obsession with Twitter that's been going on among educated people now for um, for 10 years. You know, remember there was a line that Twitter was gonna save us all. Remember Arab Spring? Arab Spring is gonna completely bring democracy to the Arab world. And what is the cause of this rev this extraordinary revolution that'll change everything? Twitter. Literally, that was an argument that very intelligent people made 10 years ago. It was complete nonsense at the time. And by the way, I wrote an article for The New Yorker saying it was complete nonsense. You would not have believed the abuse I got at the time. Of course, what happened? Twitter didn't change anything. Twitter's just a dumb thing that we invented to give you know all kinds of cranky voices like a microphone. So it's like don't worry, it might shut down soon. <laughs> no, you know, nothing will change. Um, but my point is that we 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 we've done a really good job at inventing discontents. That's what's mm -hmm. happening here, right? We're getting really ingenious about finding ways to be unhappy, and I just think we need to stop that and put our energies towards finding ways to be optimistic. So, so if we are on that topic, I'm dragging you back to the Jewish world because, again, one of my favorite uh, episodes of Revisionist History is titled Generous Orth uh, Orthodoxy. And you describe your community. Again, you say that they are small in number, close-knit, came to North America after persecuted in Russia. The joke is that they're basically Jews who farm. Yeah. Your words— my words. Um, <laughs> Although Jews do farm in Israel, but the kind of true, the true. kind of farming that goes on in Israel does not in any way resemble the kind of farming that Mennonites do in southern Ontario. I assume they they, <laughs> they seem like some sort of a I don't know a, a mesh of wait, Jews what is it and, that, and Amish. What is it that what? the there's some I once read this hilarious thing about whether the is it the cherry tomato that Israelis claim to have invented? I think it's the yes, cherry tomato. Yes, we claim to. Have invented many things. <laughs> By the way, yeah, so there was some historian who wrote this long thing about, did in I think it's a cherry tomato. Did, in fact, Israelis invent the cherry tomato? The answer is no, you didn't. But you've done this really brilliant job of pretending that you did and convincing the world. <laughs> that I thought it was just hilarious. Of all the things to want to lay claim to, you know, the, cher the cherry tomato. <laughs> Anyway, that's that. We're talking about chutzpah. That's chutzpah. Is trying to. <laughs> well, I think we let's seize the moment. He's, we? he's waiting for it. We we, we should. I've been waiting. He's, I, he's been I love waiting this. the whole conversation. I think. I think you should first of all explain how you uh, in that. I mean, if you can bear to summarize what that brilliant edition of the of the show where you distinguish between the two, and then I will offer my little thought. Yeah, but I bet and see what, how you react to. But can you you for people who haven't heard it, what is the distinction as you see it? The American Jewish versus the Israeli definitions of chutzpah, they diverge, right? That word means something different in each culture, that it has a lot more of a, of a negative connotation in Israel than it does in America. That we, we think of a kind of someone who has chutzpah in America as a, a kind of, you know, pleasantly roguish. Whereas I think it's a, there's a little bit of a darker connotation um, when it's used in Israel. You can go in a million directions with this um, about why the word would have had would have taken on such different kind of shades um, in each community. But it has to do, I, I'm, I suspect, it has to do with the difference between being a minority and being a majority. When you're in a majority, you can be a lot more open in the way that you sanction certain behavior. Whereas in, when you're in the minority, it's in your interest to make everything that is potentially objectionable about your culture seem kind of playful and mischievous. 
right? That's the... And you make this, I mean, before I get to my little minority mm. point, you make this description, I've, I hadn't come across the phrase before, but about low power distance yes. culture. Yes, yes. And, and, and it's like slightly about flat hierarchies, I yeah. think. But you, you well, Israel is the greatest. So this thing called power distance is a term that's used to describe the attitude that individual cultures have uh, towards hierarchy. So a high power distance culture would be a culture that's obsessed with status that where, you know, France is a classic high power distance culture where the president rides around in a massive limousine and is, lives in a palace and is attended on by tons of servants. And Israel is one of the lowest power distance cultures in the world. And my favorite example of this, and this will mean something to both of you, is someone was telling me a story about a problem that um, – one of the problems with that the Israeli army would have in when they were doing patrols in sort of contested territory is it's really, really hard for the person who's in charge of the unit on patrol in the middle. It's the middle of the night, right? Is getting people to shut up. The, so, the soldiers are like, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, you know, the dogs start barking and all of a sudden everyone knows they're there and like, well, you guys shut up. Well, no one's listening, you know, to the, or in, there's a, I'm going to botch this, but there's a famous thing in, am I right? In the 1973 war, doesn't Sharon, famously basically disobeys a direct command from yes. it's like that's what you do there's no respect for i mean if you do that in america if you do that in france you would be court-martialed and sent to the rest of your Devil's days to, yeah to elba to you know like in the same <laughs> prison they kept napoleon but it's like what happens to sharona he becomes a hero Right, I mean, and then he's prime minister. It's like so. It's like very different. That's a very and I was interested in this in my book Outliers because low power distance cultures have are uh, way better at avoiding plane crashes um, because mm -hmm. the co pilot can question the the flying a plane is a two person activity, and if the co pilot's not willing to speak up and challenge the pilot, then you get crashes. And you cannot imagine an Israeli co pilot who would not point out a mistake made by his or her captain, right? I mean, it's, in, it's unimaginable, right? They would delight that. They were like, you idiot, what are you doing, right? <laughs> Whereas you can imagine, you know, in this is a real issue I talked about in South Korea, where you, a very seriously hierarchical culture, where you have to, it takes enormous amount of courage uh, to question your superior. And, and medicine, I always was heard that was one of those yeah. interesting examples where in the operating theatre used to be high power distance culture. No, one, the nurse didn't dare tell the surgeon he was making a mistake, and lives were lost as a result. But aviation is a fascinating yeah. example. So, so, it, so oh. it, it, and so with Hutzman. So, I, as I understood it, I think you were and absolutely right. I think as saying that there's an American sense of the word is that it's got kind of brio and moxie. It's a kind of play, uh, bravado and. And, and admirable. Mm. And then the Israeli one, I think in the examples you give in the, in the show it was, uh, gave was a lot of, to me as a Brit, I just think people are being rude. It just sounds <laughs> people be, just being rude to somebody. I think the element that where I come from, and I think it may go to a subtle distinction between the American Jewish community and diaspora Jewish communities outside America, which are very small, is I think there's this key element of, of sort of hypocrisy. It's like of, of nerve. To do it, and so the example that we always draw on is in Leo Rosten's Joys of Yiddish. Yeah. He defines the word as the man who's on trial for killing both his parents, who asks for leniency because he's an yeah. orphan. Yeah. All right. It's got that element of sort of there's a hypocritical element in there. Yeah. Maybe that's the Yiddish addition to this. You know, so maybe it's a trio of versions. It's different slightly from the American bravado. It's different from the outrageous Israeli rudeness, as I would yeah. see it. It's got that element of, well, that to me is chutzpah, is yeah. when you have the, the nerve to complain, what, when you yourself are the source of the Yeah. Problem. What underlies all of these definitions, though, is that underneath all of this is, it's a compliment, right? The, the person who is showing chutzpah is showing a kind of, some mixture of ingenuity and, well, you said brio, which is a lovely, you know, it's, it's like they're 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 expressing themselves in a kind of bold and interesting and creative way. You know, you're kind of you're admiring someone's ability to kind of really, you know, put themselves out there, and and that's the kind of you know, if you're a small embattled community, it makes sense that you'd be very interested in 
celebrating um, people's kind of their ability to impose themselves on a situation, right? You're, that's something that you that you. It's funny because I've been writing this book about, like I said, about African Americans in LA, and I'm really interested in the strategies that small embattled communities, marginalized communities, use when they're trying to um, express their anger, right? So. And you know you have a variety of very different strategies available to you, and there is you can look you can do the same kind of analysis with, I think, with Jewish groups in the world that you have, chutzpah is a strategy, for dealing with your marginalized status, you know the, mm -hmm. um, so is humor. Humor is a, a subversive strategy that you learn. If you look at, I was talking recently about someone about American comics. You know, it is if you made a list of the top, most successful, American comedians of the last 25 years, you'd be very hard-pressed to find more than a handful who came from white American Protestant culture, the dominant culture. No one comes from the dominant culture. They're all African-American or Jewish or, you know, they're all outsiders. It's because if you come from the dominant culture, why would you ever need to develop any kind of subversive skills, right? There's no, no reason. You're getting everything you want, right? So it's sort of interesting. You you talked a little bit, and it connects to our what did you call it, Jonathan? Outrageous Israeli rude uh, behavior. Well, in, in the <laughs> example that Malcolm <laughs> gave, yeah, in the show, <laughs> I thought it was just I'm rude. Kid I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I was connected to Malcolm. You discussed Israeli satire, uh, satire in general, and Israeli satire. And you talked about um, Eretz Nederet, which is our yeah. brilliant uh, satire programs, wonderful uh, country. You talked about the, the fact that Israeli satire really you know, does use comedy to land a, a massive blow. And I think you're right about that. And I, I was thinking about this this week because after the elections here in Israel, and don't worry, I'm not trying to drag you into the quagmire of Israeli politics, but there was this very, the skit of Eretz Nederet that kind of got a lot of traction here and a lot of flack. It was a few weeks ago and they took the far right leader, Itamar Ben-Gvir, and they threw the character in on stage and the music in the background was springtime for Hitler, which is very gutsy. Yeah. It was a very powerful skit. They have a lot of guts. Again, a lot of people liked it. A lot of people didn't. At the end of the day, Itamar Ben-Gvir is the third largest party in Israel. So it does, you know, I, I just threw into, it reminded me of that question of how powerful satire can be. At the mm. end of the day, did you actually get the effect that you wanted or just the opposite? I mean, it's something that I'm sure that, you know, we Israelis are struggling with a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think that the... um the mistake, thinking back on this, you're referring to an episode of Revision History that I did, mm -hmm. I think in the very early on, first or second season. And I, reflecting on it, I think the mistake that we make with in evaluating satire is in trying to figure out what effect it had on the culture. And I think, you know, sometimes it clearly does have an effect, sometimes it doesn't. That shouldn't be the metric that we use to evaluate. Sometimes the most effective satire is satire that doesn't even have any effect at all. That simply what it's doing is, is it's transgressive. You can transgress in a productive way without having an immediate impact on the world around you. Sometimes those kinds of creative transgressions, they can instruct in sort of subtle long-term ways, can change conversations in a way that we can't really measure, um, can create opportunities for others who are watching. You know, there's a, a variety of things that are of benefits from that that are unmeasurable. And so I'm, I worry sometimes that people say, because the immediate impact of that sketch or skit was counterproductive, or because many people were offended, or because this or that, it shouldn't have been done. And I sort of think, no, I think comedy should be the place where you can try virtually anything. And we let's not get caught up in this game of trying to of treating it as if it's a, you know, a social policy or an economic intervention where we can do cost benefit analysis on its impact. Or let comedians try and save the world. Yeah. I, I've, just because it's about comedy and, and the risks of it. Well, I want to ask you about one of my favorite pieces of your writing, which is the story you told for the moth about your friend Craig <laughs> and the wedding toast you did for him, which was an attempt at comedy. Yeah. You satirize, as I understand it, he had a kind of controlling girlfriend who became his yeah. wife and you sang a song which was instead of my way, it was he's doing it her yeah. way. And and the relationship, well, so my question is, I think the story you said is that it ruined a friendship, but have you ever made it up 
with Craig and mm. did and and did the act of making a joke about it and then a story about it, telling the world about it, so that I know about your friend Craig. Did that make it worse? Uh, did that compound the offence, or have you got over it? No. So just you know, there's many many levels here of so the the story that I told about this wedding toast was in minor ways. Um, was a itself a kind of an elaboration, you know. It didn't exactly go down as I said. In some ways, actually, it went down worse. But um, and <laughs> the names were changed. Did as someone well, die? And certain kinds of so identities were shielded. It is possible yes. that you could have known the parties involved and not recognized them in the unless you went to the wedding. But of course, you completely recognize what happened. The backstory is that I went to a little college in Canada. Um, called Trinity College, which this is no longer the case. But when I went there, had an extremely, it was a small residential college of less than a thousand people, very, very close knit, had a long running tradition of this kind of humor, of this kind of bracing, exceedingly self-critical humor. In fact, there were a series of college institutions that were created and would put on performances several performances a year where everyone would show up and the one person after another would just be raked over the coals in what was hopefully a... So there was this rich tradition of you were supposed to take it and we felt there was some benefit in being held up to comic scrutiny in front of your peers. So the Craig, the the groom in this, who was the subject of this um, song um, at his wedding, ran that college institution so he had dished it out for, you know, for an entire year and had made vicious fun of, had been responsible for making vicious fun of countless people. So that's the context. So when he got married, it was our occasion to turn the tables on him, right? So I, I left that out of the story because I thought it was too complicated. But if you know that, you realize, oh, there's a context. In other words, as is so often the case in any kind of satire or comedy, once you if, you, if you don't understand the social context in which it's taking place, you don't understand what's going on. So there was context in that, which makes it a little more understandable. Um, but the wedding was ruined. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I can sing you the song if you like. <laughs> oh, go on. No, you do. You do it very well. There's you perform yeah, the song as well. Just one line. Go on. <laughs> give us one line. Well, it was a play. It, it's it's astonishing how easy I am to convince on this. So it was a play on um, "My Way" by Frank Sinatra. Um, and remember the line in Friends, uh, uh, success, I've, uh, no, no, mistakes, I've I've made a few, in fact, a lot, the list is. Um, so we had, this is a song about this guy getting married, and one of the jokes is he a, was a real ladies' man. So our version of that was, girlfriends, I've had a few, in fact, a lot, the list is endless. <laughs> but, um, and then his wife, we said, was named Liz, but Liz is a woman, that's true. And she set him straight, and now he's friendless. <laughs> We're not like that. <laughs> oh dear! I wonder why I you think you ruined, ruined the women the exactly. It's like, I oh. she, it should, it's not vicious. It's clearly a it's joke. Funny. You know, in every every relationship re- requires the parties <laughs> to the relationship to discipline their appetites once the once the marriage begins. I'm, I'm interested in, in in the question of podcasting and uh-huh. being an author and being in a solitary room and writing your own words and then suddenly having this um, enterprise that is a col- collaboration, really. And not only this, but also sort of the audiobooks, the Paul Simon, the Miracle and Wonder, and even the Mo- the, the Bomber Mafia, which you, first of all, published as, a, as an audiobook. Talk to us a little about that, about your audio yeah. adventures. Well, it changes the way you tell stories. So if you, what we've been doing with our audiobooks and is the same thing we do with our podcasts, which is we try to, it's more of an audio documentary than it is a kind of mm-hmm. straight narrative. So you hear the tape wherever possible of uh, the people that I'm talking about. So it changes. So you tend to, first of all, it means on a kind of storytelling, you're drawn to stories where there is tape. You also have, you know, there's a, for example, in my book that I'm writing about Los Angeles, there's a, song that was the number one song in the United States in 1946 called Open the Door, Richard, uh, which you should Google um, or YouTube. It's this unbelievably 
infectious, brilliant, hilarious, way, way before its time song. You could you could put it out today and people would think it was a contemporary song. And it's a very complex allegory about civil rights. If you listen to it, you think it's about a drunk black guy on the street knocking on the door, trying to get his roommate to open it. But in fact, it's a story about let me into this world. You've I'm outside, it's cold. What do you, you know, mm. wake up. I want to, I want in. And if I was writing a, a standard book about Los Angeles, I wouldn't even have mentioned the song. It just wouldn't have occurred to me. But now I'm, I know that I'm going to be doing an audiobook version, which is going to have real audio, and I'm going to be playing the song. And when you hear the song, not only do you have an insight into its double meaning, but you're also moved because it's so brilliantly done. And when you understand, oh, this is about a community of people who are outside in the cold. And the only way they can express their anger is in code. And it's like, in listening to that song, you get it. You're like, oh my God. They could have said, they could have screamed and shouted, and but they couldn't even do that. They had to dress it up. You know, there's a version with Count Basie, you know, one of the brilliant jazz musicians of that era. And, you know, they had to turn their anguish into a work of art in order to get it out into the world. Like, it's just like, it's just such a kind of heartbreaking and moving fact, right? So when you're, I only, the only, only reason I went down that road was that I knew that I would be creating an audiobook with real sound. We're almost out of time. In our last 60 seconds, I just want to, again, ask you something about podcasts. The late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said that Judaism was an auditory culture mm. about hearing and listening. Uh, well, you know, core prayer, Shema Israel, hero Israel. What does it say about, the, and he said that was a contrast with the fact that all around was visual culture, yeah. television, the video image, etc. How do you explain the fact that podcasts, audio, have been such a success in a culture that is drenched in the visual. Well, maybe all of our listeners are Jewish. That would explain. <laughs> Ours, maybe. I'm not so sure about yours. <laughs> but, um, well, because there are so many, I mean, there's practical reasons that audio works in context where video doesn't, walking down the street, commuting, driving your car. Um, but more than that, it's, it's so much more emotional. There is something about someone whispering in your ear that can move you in a way that almost no other form of communication can move you. And all of the best uh, podcasting is stuff that is emotional, not analytic, not linear, not any, not traditional storytelling in that sense. When they're, when they're really trying to kind of move you in some significant way, that mode is just without parallel. We tend to agree, I think, no? <laughs> We do. Malcolm Gladwell, legendary podcaster and writer and thinker. Thanks so much for coming Thank on. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was so much fun. So one of our very favourite unholy conversations there with Malcolm Gladwell. You can see why we loved it. Personally, I just love the bit when he sings. That's, for me, an absolute treat. I keep going back to that. Hope you've enjoyed it. I uh, hope you're having a good break wherever you are. If you are having a break, we will see you for a regular episode next week. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.